Welcome to Healthy Planet, Healthy You with Jimena Yanez and Lorenzo Rosenzweig. Over the next hour, you'll discover unique ideas and perspectives about how to improve your health and the planet as well. Now, here are your hosts, Jimena and Lorenzo. Welcome. Hello and bienvenidos, my friends. Thank you for tuning in to Healthy Planet, Healthy You. I am Lorenzo Rosenzweig, and I have dedicated more than 40 years of my life to the natural world and its conservation as an environmentalist. I am also a writer, a photographer, an amateur naturalist, a grandfather of six, in December probably seven, and a watercolor artist. <laughs> Congratulations, Lorenzo, and bienvenidos. Hello, happy Wednesday. So excited to be here with you. My name is Jimena Yanez. I am an author, a health coach, and a Reiki and biomagnetism therapist. I am an environmental advocate, and in an effort to change the environmental trends, I teach people how to transition to a more sustainable, nutrient-packed, healthy, and delicious plant-based diet. What is good and new for you, Lorenzo? I feel recharged by the weekend activities. Spent last Saturday in the mountains planting pumpkins, of course, for the next autumn, and photographing nature under the wonderful rain, and also had the pleasure of tasting fresh oysters a good friend of mine sent me from Baja California. Mm. What is good and new for you, Jimena? I am good. Thank you, Lorenzo. I had a daring weekend. <laughs> I decided to explore a fusion of cardio and pilates, and despite I'm used to practicing yoga daily, I am learning about some muscles in my legs I didn't know I had. <laughs> I'm so sore. But believe it or not, sore muscles make me very happy because they remind me to keep exercising and trying new things. <laughs> I, know, I know that feeling very well. Today, we'll talk about biodiversity and the risks of losing it. We will have Jennifer Gooden with us today. Jennifer is an expert on conservation through private actions, private land conservation projects, and also very well-versed in landowners' psychology and, of course, a subject we all care about, nature-based solutions. We're looking forward to talk to Jennifer in the next segment. So every week we engage in casual conversations to help you understand what is really going on, considering there's a lot of conflicting information on the news and on social media. We want you to exercise your right to decide for yourself, so we offer facts that you can double-check later on your own. So allow us to tell you the story of how we got into the current environmental and health crisis. What are the odds if we fail to act during the next seven to ten years? And what are the things you can do for your personal benefit and at the same time to support global efforts towards a healthy planet? Yes, and in the last episode, we talked about some interesting facts about water, the hydrological cycle, how there is a virtual component in our usage of water, how we are steadily and mostly unconsciously polluting our freshwater resources, and how many of its physical, chemical, and structural properties are so complex that water remains a mystery for science. And as we continue to explore and discover the wonders of water, there is still much to learn from the universe, this remarkable planet, and all living organisms. Mm -hmm. So today, we will talk about biodiversity. 
By the way, <laughs> yesterday was the International Day of Biological Diversity, and this is an effort to appreciate biodiversity and increase awareness. This year's theme was From Agreement to Action, Build Back Biodiversity, in which more than 20 actions for biodiversity were recommended, and we will be taking about them during the show. Okay, yeah. Well, happy Biological Diversity Day. But first things first, Lorenzo, tell us, what is biodiversity? Of course, Jimena. But remember, I am an amateur naturalist. But anyhow, <laughs> I'm happy to explain it. Biological diversity or biodiversity is a term used to describe the variety of life on Earth at all its levels, from genes or the smallest, smallest microorganism to small and big plants and animals as well as entire ecosystems around the planet. It's very important to know that we depend on the rich biodiversity of our Earth for our survival. The air we breathe, the food and water we eat and drink, the shelter we build, the clothes we wear, the goods we use, and the medicines we take, all this come from Earth's rich and vast biological resources. Mm -hmm. However, the very sad news is that biodiversity is rapidly disappearing, and with it, many of the ecosystem services and functions it provides for humanity. When we talk about ecosystem services, we refer to four groups. The first one is provisioning ecosystem services, like food, fresh water, and medicinal resources. The second group is supporting ecosystem services, like soil formation, photosynthesis, and nutrient recycling. The third group are the regulating ecosystem services like pollination, moderation of extreme events, weather events, I mean, diseases, pest regulation, and climate stabilization. And finally, the fourth group is cultural ecosystem services like aesthetic values and spiritual and religious assets related to biodiversity. Okay, so this means that biodiversity also includes the evolutionary, ecological, and cultural processes that sustain life, meaning human, human cultural diversity. Right, Lorenzo? Yes, exactly. Cultural diversity is also part of this broad concept, and sadly, we are losing it too. I would say that through human history, our understanding of one, the importance of diverse living organisms around us, and two, their role in all ecosystems, and three, our connection to the surrounding world has been full of ups and downs. I picture our comprehension like a roller coaster. Many ancient cultures appreciated and revered biodiversity and our connection to the ecosystem, while other colonialist nations and empires made delusional permanent economic growth by ignoring, oversimplifying, and diminishing it. Fast forward to the 20th first century, biodiversity is taking an important place in discussions about the future of humanity because we're starting to acknowledge that it is the source of all our basic satisfactors for our needs. Yeah, so I hear you when you say it has been a roller coaster. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors, who of course lived openly in the wild, were forced to realize the importance of biological diversity. Through their permanent interactions with the environment, they recognized the plants that could be eaten, which were toxic, toxic for humans, which animals to hunt and eat, and which ones were dangerous and needed to stay away from. 
Humans continued evolving and farming allowed us to modify the environment and surroundings. We were able to build civilizations that separated humans from the wild. Through this process, we learned how to control this biodiversity, uh, biological diversity, as many dangerous animals were hunted or scared away, while other animals were domesticated and bred for meat, for heavy work, or as companions. Wild varieties of plants were domesticated to give rise to agriculture. Exactly. Until the early 17th century, people believed that all biodiversity that was seen on Earth had existed forever. Just imagine that. And this assumption was reinforced, of course, by religious beliefs. Until the 17th century, the phenomenon of extinction was never thought of. Yes. Well, back then, the, the fossils and bones dug out from the ground were attributed to mythological creatures like dragons or triple-headed eagles. And giants, of course, Jimena. As Robert Plott, a British British naturalist, professor of chemistry at the University of Oxford, and the first keeper of the Ashmolean Museum documented after founding a very large bone. Yeah, exactly. And of course they did. Imagine yourself back then. How on earth were you supposed to know whom those bones belonged to? And people kept finding them and documenting them. And they were similar to each other, but they didn't resemble any of the known living animals. And then curiosity made its way. Curiosity is a human skill that has prompted our technological and industrial development. I always say that we need to be curious and keep asking and challenging the mainstream. So back then, people got intrigued about whom those bones belonged to, where, when, why, and how those creatures went away. And those questions allowed them to ask and then to come up with some theories, then analyze and study, and finally recognize that a long time before us, there has been life on Earth in a totally different form. This made scientists guess that biodiversity could transform, evolve, and maybe, most importantly, go extinct. Yes, exactly. And back in those days, in many different ways, humans kept expanding their, their, their understanding of biodiversity. Around the late 1600s, Antoine Philippe van Leeuwenhoek, a Dutch microbiologist and microscopist known as the father of microbiology, discovered and documented for the first time the fascinating world of microorganisms. He was able to do that by using a simple microscope that he designed and built himself. Now, let's jump to the 19th century when Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch expanded Leuvenhock's work and proved that microorganisms were responsible for the fermentation of milk and other drinks, as well as the cause of many diseases. Their discoveries debunked the theory of spontaneous generation, which stated that living organisms could naturally arise from non-living matter, like, for example, dust. Today, after centuries of research, scientists estimate that there might be trillions of species of microorganisms in the planet. Yeah, Lorenzo, I have to tell you, I love the way you say, love and hug. (laughs) (laughs) And also in the 19th century, some intrepid naturalists embarked on heroic expeditions around the world. These trips, in these trips, during these trips, they documented and collected specimens and samples of animals, 
plants and other living forms that they found in those remote regions. Yes, and this and this finding the findings on those journeys are the basis of some ecological theories. Some of the questions that follow those explanations led to ideas like natural selection, speciation, warning coloration, and other. These findings help understand ecosystems, biological diversity, and of course, evolution. Yeah, so through the years and using a high dose of curiosity, naturalists and scientists identified long-gone species as well as others that were invisible to the naked eye. The way they managed their expeditions around the world allowed them to witness the extinction of some species. And that's when we humans started to grasp that concept. But our understanding of the importance of biodiversity for sure has had its ups and downs. It has taken us a great effort to accept that everything is connected. And actually, some of us still think we're isolated from the rest of the world. Yes, but we will get there. You will see. Eventually, we will get hopefully, there. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that reminds me of a remarkable testimonial story of the interrelation of species that took place in Yellowstone National Park in the U.S., as many of you know, the park was established as the first national park in 1872. It was created given its remarkable scenery, geysers, colorful hot springs, waterfalls falling into deep gorges, and of course, its forests and its amazing uh, biodiversity. Yeah, in the it's just beautiful. Just yeah, beautiful. it's beautiful. <laughs> in, the, in the 1880s, game hunting in the park was prohibited, making the park not only a scenic wonder one, but also a wild animal reservoir. Of course, this was followed by the expulsion of the Native Americans who lived there, causing not only immense suffering to these people, but a counterproductive conservation strategy. Anyhow, by the turn of the century, changes in the use of land complicated elk migration. Herds found their historical pathways blocked by cattle and, and, and barbed wire fences as the ranchers in the valley surrounding the park were growing in numbers. This forced the elk to stay closer to Yellowstone, shrinking the range and making them stay together. And because of these changes in their behavior, the food for them became scarce. To feed the starving animals during the winter, the federal government provided money to purchase fodder. Imagine just that political intervention kept messing up the ecosystem in 1914. The U.S. government then ordered the killing of wolves in the park adding pressure to the already intensive hunting by the neighbor ranchers to protect their cattle, another intervention to a key species in the ecosystem. According to the records, the last wolves were killed in 1926, soon after the disappearance of the uh, healthy wolf population, the elk numbers rose as never seen before, and without any predators to keep their numbers in balance, overgrazing began to deteriorate the landscape of the park. The soil erosion became a problem for streams and rivers, and in the winter of 1961, the National Park Service commanded a direct reduction of elk, which meant the killing of 5,000 animals from the northern part of the park. Another <laughs> intervention. Yeah. And of course, this left the agency under a cloud of discredit. Feeding elk in the winter seemed unnatural and then killing elk by the thousands turned out to be very unpopular. Yeah. The agency <laughs> then conceived what they called natural regulation, which allowed winter conditions and habitat to regulate elk survival, even if that meant mass starvation. However, by 1981, 
the northern Yellowstone elk herd was more than double the size it was before the 5,000 were killed. So in 1995, it was resolved that wolves were to be introduced in the park. They began to hunt elks, which changed the herd's behavior. Elks started to avoid the areas of the park where they could be easily trapped and hunted. And this prevented them from overgrazing plants and trees around Yellowstone rivers and streams. Also, the elk carcasses provided food to a wide variety of other species. This resulted in the regrowth of vegetation and allowed other animals such as birds, <clears throat> beavers, and foxes to occupy their original ecological niches. These animals found their place in the park, leading to other benefits like the adjustment and correction of the park pathways. So what you're saying is that the catalyst of the recovery and rebound of animal and plant species in the park was the reintroduction of, of wolves in Yellowstone? Yeah, like, in, like with all ecosystems, they were part of the solution. Of course, wolves are part of the story, but as natural principles are based on interdependency, interrelation, and connection between species, there were other complex and interlocking factors that played a key role. There are several studies across the world to help us keep a better understanding of biodiversity interconnection and interdependence. Regenerative ranchers, a new generation of open-minded entrepreneurs that love their land, are adopting new ways to raise cattle, using nature as a teacher. And the natural history of bison and grasslands in the American continent is a good example. Mm -hmm. in, in future episodes, we will talk about the outstanding results we're starting to see when ranchers follow nature's wisdom. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about soils in our next, next episode. So I think it, it makes sense, right, to talk about all the changes the bison uh, brought to yeah, soils. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's amazing. And, and nature can be a remarkable teacher if we learn to listen to nature and we, and we take notes. So we are approaching our first break. When we come back, we will have Jennifer Gooden from Biophilia Foundation join us. And we will continue this interesting conversation. See you in a while. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Do you want to have control over your eating decisions, your life, and your and your family's health? Do you wish to take action that benefits the planet, humanity, and generations to come? Healthy Planet, Healthy You offers a unique opportunity to increase the public's awareness of vital environmental and health issues while sharing easy-to-apply habits that can change the world. A book you cannot miss. Find it on Amazon. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. 
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Healthy Planet, Healthy You with Jimena Yanez and Lorenzo Rosenzweig. Have a question for Jimena and Lorenzo or their guests? Join us on the show at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Now back to the show. Welcome back. This episode is all about biodiversity. We are very happy to have Jennifer Gooden joining us for this segment. Jennifer is an expert on conservation through private mechanisms, also very well-versed in landowner psychology and nature-based solutions. Welcome, Jennifer. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Good, Jennifer. We have we have some questions for you, if you don't mind. Um, hopefully, uh, we have enough time to answer all of them. We know that you started your career very interested in human behavior. Can you share with us what was the event in your life that switched your interest to environmental issues and, of course, human behavior? Yeah, so you know, I think growing up there was already a foundation for being really interested in the environment. I spent a lot of time outside as a kid. Um, spent a lot of time camping with a family, and um, and my interest in human behavior came about in college. I studied social psychology as my major, and I was really interested in how um, our subconscious or what we call implicit attitudes shape the way we move through the world and shape our behavior. Um, And then after I graduated from college, I got a one-year traveling fellowship from the university. And that year was really transformative in in developing my interest in the environment. There were a lot of things that happened that year. I can give one example. Um, I was traveling in Tasmania, which, you know, is an island off the southern coast of Australia. And it has a lot of um, native virgin forest there. And we had heard, um, I was staying in youth hostels and backpacking around and some of us were having a conversation and heard what, um, how atrocious the clear cutting of those native forests looked. And I had met another young student from Japan and we decided to rent this old clunker of a car and wanted to go out and see what logging looked like. So we took this car out on dirt roads full of potholes. We shouldn't have been on them. But as we came into this cleared area, it was like a hellscape. um, And as we learned more about it, we learned that first they would poison the animals to get rid of the wildlife and they would build roads in and cut the trees um, and then first cut the brush and then the trees. And after they hauled all the trees off, they would burn the stumps. And that's the time that we got there. It was just this smoldering landscape full of smoking stumps. And that that yeah. mental image sticks with me a lot. And I think about that. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how that wood was used. I talked to some people in the community there. And, and one person told me, I wouldn't mind if that wood was going to build homes or important things. But it's going for paper towels and toilet paper. And it's a... a horrible to think that we might be tearing down such important ecosystems for uses that are frivolous and unnecessary. Uh, so I think that several things like that happened that year was um, was a big one for me. Um, after that, I um, shifted my, I've continued to work in, in social causes, but I've had a continuous environmental interest ever since then. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, what your friend told you about um, 
it would be better if this land was used for human services, right? For housing and things like that. But even thinking about that, it's also like tremendous. So um, I know you are, you know a lot of conservation psychology. So what is that and how does it relate to biodiversity? Sure. Yeah. So conservation psychology, I think of it as our use of our understanding of the human mind and human behavior um, mm -hmm. to protect wildlife and natural ecosystems and the environment. Uh, I think there's a really direct connection to biodiversity, maybe even one of the most important causes of biodiversity decline. Because if you think about it, biodiversity decline is all happening as a result of things that people do. Um, we change landscapes, we alter habitats, we pollute, we change the climate. Um, and so uh, as we get into this conservation field, so many of us start out thinking that these are technical or biological problems, when actually most of the causes of species de decline are human problems. So, um, you know, I can give you an example from conservation psychology. I did my graduate research on study of human motivation. And um, if, if you've done any reading about human motivation, you can learn that in psychology, we tend to group motivation as into two categories. It's either intrinsic or extrinsic. And intrinsic means it's something that comes from within us. We do things just for the pure love of it. And extrinsic, um, these are things that other people try to, to get us to do. So they might um, give us a reward or a payment for doing something. And that's the way they motivate behavior. Uh, and one of the really interesting things that we know from conservation psychology is that if somebody is already intrinsically motivated to do something, uh, think about a kid intrinsically motivated to read books, little kids love books, right? Mm -hmm. And then you give them an extrinsic motivator like grades, or you pay them to read a book, that extrinsic motivator can erode or eat away at intrinsic motivation and it completely undermines it. And so once you take that extrinsic reward away, you can actually end up in a worse place. It's one of the reasons kids go into school loving to read. Um, and then after they've been in school for a while, you can hardly get them to pick up a book. It feels like work. And that same thing can happen in conservation. We rely on payments to landowners in many cases to encourage them to do conservation actions. There is a risk that if they were already really interested in conservation before and they really cared about nature, Something about us paying turns it into a job. And if we stop paying after a while, their actions and the way they manage the land may end up worse for nature than it was before. And I should add like a little caveat here, which is that I don't think that means we should stop paying people to protect nature, but it does mean that we need to pay a lot of attention to that conservation psychology and think about um, how landowners respond when we talk, when we think through our communications and our incentive structures. Um, Last thing I'll say there is that mostly conservation psychology is used to try to get people to stop or lessen negative behaviors. Um, there's also a positive conservation psychology where we think about motivations, values, um, drive. Um, that's the area where I tend to work, and I feel like there's a lot of untapped potential there. I, I love that motivation part, Jennifer. And now that I remember, we were approached recently by a group of ranchers and landowners and, and they wanted us to help them put together the scientific basis for a collective conservation effort to put together uh, biological corridors and, 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 um, and 
at the beginning, we were a bit confused because we didn't understand what was their motivation. And they really, in the end, it was just their love for the land. So interesting concept. And, and I think it's something that we should work more often with. So we are listening more and more about the term systemic change um, in, in, in our work. Can you explain it? And what are the benefits of embracing it for biodiversity conservation? Sure. Yeah. So when I think about systemic change, I most often hear it in terms of human systems, um, but maybe it's easier to understand with an example from nature first, which is because it's so clear in nature. You know, if you look at an oak tree, it's never just an oak tree. Cutting down an oak tree affects not just that tree, but it affects the birds that nest in the tree. It affects the insects that live under the bark. It affects the squirrels that eat the acorns and the mycelial fungi that are connected to the roots. Uh, you know, you pull any single thread in nature and, and the whole system, the whole tapestry starts to shift. Um, and so we have the same thing in people with people. People, um, when we talk about systemic change, we're thinking about as we um, try to have some influence over human behavior, we think about people not just as a single individual, but as this whole interconnected web of, um, of relationships. Um, so maybe I'll give an example here too. Um, if we were trying to solve a problem of littering, say, and we were going to take um, an individual perspective from it, maybe we might think about what what people's attitudes toward litter are, um, or we could take an environmental perspective. And there have been these studies. In what kind of environment are people more likely to litter, a clean one or a dirty one? And it actually turns out they're most likely to litter if there's just one small piece of, I'm sorry, they're least likely to litter if there's just one small piece of litter around because they can see the impact that one thing makes on the environment. Um, but if you were to step back and look at that from a systems approach, you would ask a lot bigger questions. So you might ask, like, where is all this disposable waste coming from anyway? Like, why is there so much of it? Why is it so easy to get? Why do we have it in our cars or while we're walking around? Um, are there social factors that affect this? Like teenagers driving and peer pressure. And the, the, if we have laws or regulations, are they laws, are, are they implemented in a way that makes people want to follow them? Or are they implemented in a way that drives some rebellion and people are littering as a sign of not following the rules? So that would be the kind of systemic approach to asking questions about it. It involves a lot of questions. It's a lot harder than just addressing a problem at an individual level. Um, it requires a lot of data collection, typically kind of map out a system on paper, and then you try to figure out where your area of influence is and what you can change. And then, um, you know, if you've done it well, though, these systemic um, solutions can often be much longer lasting and durable than individual solutions. Yeah, perfect. So now that we're talking about systems, we were talking about the famous and controversial case of wolf reintroduction re in Yellowstone National Park. This practice we know is uh, called rewilding and it aims to restore ecosystems and reverse biodiversity declines by allowing, allowing wildlife and natural processes to reclaim ecosystems. So in your experience, what are the benefits or risks of rewilding? Oh, I love talking about rewilding. Um, and the case from Yellowstone is, uh, is a fun like, classic case of that. I think that you know, the, that word processes is really key to understanding rewilding, why it's a little different from how we've thought about conservation before. You might think of more conventional conservation being compositionalist. Like we're concerned about what things are out there, whereas in rewilding, we're concerned about how they work, how they all fit together. Um, and 
rewilding these days, that term is used for a huge range of different actions. We see people talking about rewilding their gardens. And of course, we have large landscape scale discussions like rewilding Yellowstone or even entire um, corridors like Yellowstone to Yukon. Um, so if you think about rewilding, or if you think about, I guess, human relationship with nature as this continuum with control um, and like domestic domestication and tameness on one end and wild on the other, rewilding is just moving a little things a little farther along toward the wild side. If you're rewilding your garden, that's going to look really different from rewilding uh, Yellowstone National Park. And I mentioned that because the benefits and risks really differ a lot too, depending on the scale. I mean, every one of these situations is unique, but if we want to make some generalizations, I think the biggest risk comes from letting go of control. Uh, that Yellowstone case is such an interesting one because yeah, people had hypotheses about what would happen with a wolf reintroduction. They knew that elk uh, populations would change. Um, but there are that's such a complex ecosystem. There is no way you can predict all the ripple effects through the ecosystem. It, who would think that reintroducing elk would change the temperature of the streams? But it did because whenever the elk populations declined and these landscapes of fear caused them to congregate in some areas and not in others, you had a return of riparian vege vegetation, which shaded the stream, which reduced the temperatures and allowed for more native stream biodiversity. You had a lot of impacts on populations of mesopredators. And, and that lack of control can be really scary. It might go well. And for most, for most people, not everyone, most people think the Yellowstone reintroduction went brilliantly. Um, but you also don't know what might happen with return of invasive species or, um, or other factors beyond your control. So that's the tough part. Um, the benefits, a couple come to mind. Rewilding has got a lot of attention in Europe lately, maybe more so because conservation tended to be more controlled in Europe and we had bigger, wilder landscapes in, in North America already. I think that's part of the appeal there. But one of the selling points for rewilding has been cost effectiveness. Um, so there were a lot of places where there were important habitats, say like a, um, a coastal wetland that are ecologically, that's an intermediate state of succession. Um, so trees are always wanting to grow in that ecosystem. And if you wanna keep that habitat for certain key species, like a particular bird species, you've got to do a lot of work to always mow it and pull the seedlings or the saplings. Um, and it, in a conventional approach, that's what they were doing. And then when rewilding came about, people said, how could we think about whatever, what the historic or um, native ecological functions were in this area? And of course, there was the aurochs, there was the tarpan. These were the extinct herbivores of Europe. And so they used some de-domesticated livestock and reintroduced them to some of these areas. And that turns out that livestock, um, in, in, it's a lot cheaper to manage livestock than it is to mow and pull tree saplings. So um, there's been a real economic and financial benefit. Tourism has increased, um, and that's been, been a big driver of it. And then you know, maybe this is just me, but I feel like there's also something really aspirational about rewilding. It gives us this sense of, um, of hope because so many things that we deal with in conservation, we're like fighting a losing battle. Um, and we hear so much about decline and, Extinction, um, rewilding gives us kind of this sense that there's something really positive to work toward. Interesting, very interesting, Jennifer. Yeah, I, I love this metaphor that, that of tampering with nature is like like starting to 
to change things in an airplane, which is also a sophisticated system. And it will keep on flying until sometime one day you will retire a key component of the airplane and then you know the end. Okay, so I will combine two questions, um, Jennifer. Um, and the first one is, how does private land conservation play a key role in biodiversity conservation? And also give us some explanation of nature-based solutions, probably start with nature-based solutions. Can these solutions reverse degradation and restore biodiversity and ecosystem function? And of course, it has to do with this cost-effectiveness that you just mentioned. Sure, yeah. Um, cost-effectiveness is a, a really big benefit here. So nature-based solutions are when we use nature conservation or restoration to solve problems that are faced by humans. Um, often we think about nature-based solutions as an alternative to an engineered or technological solution. Um, I'm sure you all know about green infrastructure. That was one of the early examples of nature-based solution. We used to, and still do some, um, use concrete channels and heavy processing plants to purify water. But with green infrastructure, you can use wetlands and, um, and natural spaces to clean that water. And the key thing there that, that green infrastructure illustrates is that nature-based solutions have a lot of co-benefits. So whereas, in engineered solutions tended to dry out our landscape. Nature-based solutions provide habitat for biodiversity and uh, water infiltration in the soil, um, stream flow, and places to recreate and enjoy nature's beauty. Um, so that's what nature-based solutions are. They're getting really popular. Uh, can they help? Absolutely. I mean, it's estimated that nature-based solutions could provide 30% of the cost-effective mitigation necessary to stabilize our climate at uh, increase of two degrees Celsius by 2030. Are they the entire answer? No, um, you know, it's 30% for climate mitigation. Um, it's no reason for us to stop uh, working really hard to reduce fossil fuel emissions, for example. Um, so uh, the connection to private land conservation there is that many of the processes um, that we need for biodiversity to thrive take place on private land just as they do on public land. In the United States, private land is 60%. It's even higher in some places like South Africa, nearly 75%. And without addressing um, ecosystems there, there's no way we can provide a full answer for biodiversity. Well, we're approaching to the end of the show, but we want to close this segment asking you what gives you hope. Um, knowing that there are hundreds and thousands of people out there all doing their part, that gives me a lot of hope. Perfect. Well, it's time to go for to us. It's time for us to go to the next break. So thank you so much, Jennifer. Uh, when we return, we will talk about the things you can do to take action now. So your everyday choices will lead you to optimal health and also aligned with global environmental efforts. Stay tuned. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Do you want to have control over your eating decisions, your life, and your and your family's health? Do you wish to take action that benefits the planet, humanity, and generations to come? Healthy Planet, Healthy You offers a unique opportunity to increase the public's awareness of vital environmental and health issues while sharing easy-to-apply habits that can change the world. A book you cannot miss. Find it on Amazon. 
Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Healthy Planet, Healthy You with Jimena Yanez and Lorenzo Rosenzweig. Have a question for Jimena and Lorenzo or their guests? Join us on the show at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Now back to the show. Welcome back. If you're tuning in, we have been talking about biodiversity. Before the break, Jennifer Gooden shared with us some interesting facts about conservation psychology, systemic change, rewilding, and nature-based solutions. Jennifer is hanging out with us, so she will keep complimenting our thoughts. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So we talked in our first segment about how humans were led to understand the concepts of biodiversity and extinction. Today, we understand many things our ancestors were aware of, and it would be unwise to ignore the fact that anthropogenic activities have brought a wide variety of challenges to biodiversity. Climate change, urbanization, deforestation, monocropping, the use of synthetic pesticides and fertilizers, poaching and overhunting, just to mention some, are driving us to forget the most basic principle of life. Everything is connected. And that means that we too are part of this intricate life network. Yeah, yeah. And it seems oblivion is driving humanity towards a future where we don't know if life can be sustained. We're also unaware of how our lives may be affected by the loss of other beings. And just to give you an example, um, a couple of days ago, I found in an app, it's used for sharing information with neighbors, the following heartbreaking post, and, and I'm going to quote, People, dandelions are weeds. They're not flowers. They make your yard look trashy, and you're go not going to save the world's bee population by not weeding your yard. <laughs> and some answers like, I agree with ya. There are plenty dandelions in the parks and parkways for the bees. They don't need to eat in my yard. <laughs> so... This makes me realize we have been taught to feel separated from our surrounding, surrounding world and therefore to get rid of the things we don't find valuable or just useful. Weeds are just an example, but we have the belief that anything that doesn't serve us instantly must be removed or eliminated. Even knowing our existence depends on other species, we have learned to make everything about us, our pers personal tastes, our comfort. Um, the naturalist and father of sociobiology, Edward O. Wilson, said, we have created a Star Wars civilization with Stone Age emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. We are drowning in information while starving for wisdom. 
The Earth is our home. Unless we preserve the rest of life as a sacred duty, we will be endangering ourselves by destroying the home in which we evolve and on which we completely depend. I love this quote of E.O. Wilson. It's an amazing quote. It is never too late to bring awareness to how our actions and decisions affect other living beings whom we shared our planet with, but most importantly, how these decisions are already affecting our health, our life expectancy, and our future. Yeah, centuries of invasive and aggressive human activities have placed biodiversity under tremendous stress. Within the last 500 years, we have forced hundreds of species into extinction. And while the Earth has always experienced changes and extinctions over the last century, our anthropogenic practices, our human practices, have caused ecosystems to change at an unprecedented rate. Today, deforestation, agriculture, and farming practices are the biggest threats to biodiversity around the world, reducing millions of hectares of natural habitats every year. Let me clarify something relevant. Although biological diversity is often understood in terms of the wide variety of plants, animals, and microorganisms, it also includes genetic differences within each species as well as diverse ecosystems and their corresponding interactions between participants, human, plants, and animals. According to the United Nations 2019 Global Assessment Report on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, we have driven one million species to the brink of extinction, all of which could disappear from Earth within decades. Scientists are already telling us that this devastating rate of extinction is putting our planet in the midst of an accelerated sixth mass extinction event that otherwise would have taken thousands of years to happen. And let me say it once more, major direct threats to biodiversity include habitat loss and fragmentation, unsustainable resort use, invasive species, pollution, and of course, climate change. Yes, and, and also, and sadly unknown to many people, soils are one of the largest reservoirs of biological diversity on Earth. And this biodiversity is responsible for critical ecosystem functions such as organic matter decomposition, um, cycling of nutrients, plant growth and performance, and soil formation and balance. Connections between our health and microbial biodiversity from soils remain poorly understood, but living soils are vital to humans because they influence the quantity and quality of the food we eat, the air we breathe, and the water we drink. Additionally, land use change, which includes urbanization, agriculture, deforestation, and desertification, can have a ripple effect on soil biodiversity and can extend far beyond the original place of the disturbance. The decline in soil <clears throat> excuse me, biodiversity elevates the risk to human health as this biodiversity remediates soil, suppresses pathogens, shapes the beneficial human microbiome, and promotes immune functions and fitness. Yeah, and also soil is home to 25% of our planet's biodiversity, and our modern agricultural practices are a huge factor contributing to the accelerating loss rate. As we have seen in previous episodes, the global food system currently, 
currently releases about one-third of the annual anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions and is responsible for the global eutrophication of waters. And despite it represents a lot of environmental problems, we keep increasing our global demand for animal protein. So what are some of the things you can do if you want to be part of the solution? For starters, you can switch to a plant-based diet, which will make deforestation rates drop substantially, allowing natural habitats to recover and thrive again. And we will be talking about healthy soils in the next yeah. episodes. Mm -hmm. Likewise, Jimena, oceans are a magnificent display of biological diversity. Biodiversity resources are the pillars upon which we will build civilizations and thrive. Unfortunately, ocean's biodiversity is also threatened by overfishing, eutrophication, and climate change. It has been proven that biodiversity loss could expand zoonosis or diseases transmitted from animals to humans. While understanding and preserving biodiversity offers excellent tools to prepare our bodies for better health and immunity. Mm. Luckily, some studies have shown that by lowering the demand for fish and reducing the rate of bycatch at the same time, marine species are able to repopulate, come back at a remarkable speed. Yes, and again, <laughs> the key concept is lowering the demand, which we can only do by becoming aware that what we put on our plates has a direct impact on biodiversity loss. So as we're starting to talk about the things we can do, let's go to the proposed theme of this year's International Day for Biodiversity, from agreement to action, build back biodiversity. This year's global celebrations were designed to bring a renewed sense of hope with the adoption of the coming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework at COP15. This framework is the agreement and the intention to quickly shift to its implementation is the action. This agreement aims to halt and reverse nature loss. It consists of 23 global targets to, achieve, to be achieved between 2030 and 2050 to safeguard and sustainably use biodiversity. So the framework has been adopted and the next thing to do is accelerate the actions to address the key drivers of biodiversity loss. From the 23 targets, I would like I would like to highlight four. One, the conservation of land and sea. Two, the restoration of degraded ecosystems. Three, halting the introduction of invasive species. And four, incredibly important, reducing subsidies to harmful practices. Yeah, and also the parties to the convention were encouraged to launch and share their actions yesterday, mm -hmm. May 22nd. And you, me, everyone is also encouraged to take action. So what are some, some of the actions we can take to sum up the efforts? Well, the first one is to be a responsible consumer, which of course includes being mindful of what you put on your plate. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible how important the consumer can become as an individual. Some of the actions you can take are reduce food waste, and we will be talking about this in a future episode, search or buy sustainable produce, meaning the produce that is not grown using harmful pesticides and fertilizers, and of course, try to buy locally. Three, as we saw in the last episode, useless water, and four, reduce your plastic usage because it is a tremendous contaminant that not only affects ecosystems, animals, and plants, but it's, it's starting to affect our health 
as microplastics, which is the result of this degradation of plastics, have been found in human tissues and organs. Yeah. Also, reconnect with nature, don't litter, travel sustainably, and whenever possible, restore and uh, restore nature and biodiversity. What I personally do regarding this last recommendation is compost all my food scraps. And even though at the end of the year they will turn just in a little compost, I know I'm contributing to the effort of bringing life to soils. Yes, definitely. Composting is a game changer. While loss and waste occur across the entire food system, composting returns power to individuals and households. Mm -hmm. Circular thinking sustains life and balances our relationships with nature. We I just want to jump in, Lorenzo, and say, I think composting is such a great example because it addresses so many of the different goals in the agreement to action um, day. It addresses land use change, helps us restore the health of our soils, and um, reduces that subsidy that we get for sending all of our waste off to a landfill. Yeah, I love composting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we are approaching the end of this episode. So, Let's do a quick recap of five facts we have reviewed. One, biological diversity or biodiversity is a term used to describe the variety of life on Earth at all its levels. Two, biodiversity is rapidly, rapidly disappearing and with it, many of the ecosystem services and functions it provides to humanity. Three, Nature principles are based on interdependency, interrelation, and connection between species. Four, anthropogenic activities have driven one million species to the brink of extinction, all of which could disappear from the earth within decades. And five, this devastating rate of extinction is putting our planet in the midst of an accelerated sixth mass extinction event that otherwise would have taken thousands of years to happen. Yes, and now what are the things you can do? But first, let me quote again Mr. O Edward O. Wilson. You are capable of more than you know. Choose a goal that seems right for you and strive to be the best, however hard the path. Aim high, behave honorably, prepare to be alone at times to endure failure. Persist, the world needs all you can give. So, number one, be a responsible consumer. Reduce your food waste, by, buy sustainable produce, and use less water. Number two, avoid plastics as much as you can. Number three, reconnect with nature and travel sustainably. And number four, however and whenever you can, restore nature and biodiversity. I am always encouraged by the things we can do. Remember that whatever we do as individuals, families, and communities adds to the global solution. And it makes also messengers, us messengers of hope and responsible ancestors. I'm, I'm so excited about next week's conversation. Thank you, Lorenzo, and thank you, Jennifer. I found biodiversity quite fascinating. And thank you for tuning in and joining us in casual conversations about health and nature in Healthy Planet, Healthy You. Nos vemos la próxima semana. We hope you join us next week. Hasta la próxima. Enjoy your week. Bye, Jennifer. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Healthy Planet, Healthy You with Jimena Yanez and Lorenzo Rosenzweig. We hope you've learned something new today that can help you in your life and how to make this a better planet. Until next time, have a healthy and regenerative week.